Welcome to Role-Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role-playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 73, The Fantasy Trip, Fudge, and the Gumshoe System. At the end of last week's episode, I noted that I was working on three different topic ideas for this week's show, and I have to admit that none of today's topics were a part of that. I decided to go with today's show because I'm gathering so much information on the other topics I was working on. I want to give them the amount of time they deserve to be the best episodes they can be. I'd researched today's topics in the past, but I'd never been happy with the amounts of information I dug up on any of them. So I did what I typically would do in these cases. I filed the info away for potential use later on. Today just happens to be later on. And for those of you who are worried about me running out of material doing multiple subjects in a single show... Don't fret. My legal pad of ideas is still full, so we've got plenty of topics to cover as the show continues. Plus, should we ever run out of topics, my buddy Jim gave me an idea for the next generation of this show, so role-playing history isn't going anywhere so long as I still have the energy and ability to crank out new episodes. Alright, so enough of that crap. Let's get the tour bus cranked up and make our first stop on today's tour, The Fantasy Trip. The Fantasy Trip was the creation of Steve Jackson and was released by Metagaming. However, it's not as straightforward as just releasing a single book with the name on a particular date. The history is a bit more varied than that, so let's get into it. The Fantasy Trip is actually a combination of three separate games or sets of rules, and I'll spell it all out as I go along. Melee was released first in 1977. Metagaming released it as a part of what they called the Micro Game series. For those keeping score at home, Melee was number three. It was designed to be a fast-playing, man-to-man tactical combat war game, and was designed to be simple to both learn and play. The game itself consisted of a small, empty hex map, a counter sheet of men, monsters, and weapons, in case any were dropped in combat, and a 17-page rulebook. Every figure in Melee had a strength and dexterity attribute, but they didn't quite work the way you think they would. Since we've got the time, let's take a look. Strength determined how much damage a figure could take, as well as the size of the weapons that could be used. And as you would expect, heavier weapons increased the amount of damage inflicted in combat. Dexterity determined how easy or hard it would be to hit your opponent. The figure could be wearing armor, which would reduce the amount of damage taken in combat, but it would lower the dexterity score. Melee was a pretty popular game, especially since it was easy to learn and play, so Jackson decided to build on what he had created. Wizard was released in 1978. Again, for those keeping score at home, it was micro game number six. Wizard was a pocket board game of, you guessed it, individual magical combat. The rulebook for Wizard was larger than Melee's, consisting of 32 pages. However, a large part of that was the inclusion of the majority of the rules from Melee. The difference between the two is that Wizard added the magic system. This came with another stat for the character, Intelligence, or IQ for short. In Wizard, IQ determined your magical ability. Now, there was another new wrinkle added to the game, as the ability to add points to the attribute scores was included, which meant you could improve the character. That also meant that if your IQ score was higher, you could cast more powerful spells than somebody with a lower IQ. There was a downside to using magic, though. 
Casting spells would temporarily drain the character's strength score, which meant there was a limit to the number of spells a character could cast before they'd be forced to rest to regain their strength. If you think about it, that's a pretty realistic way to look at it, and it was certainly more realistic than a number of the fantasy games on the market at the time. I'm looking at you, D&D. The third piece of the fantasy trip puzzle was released in 1980. Called In the Labyrinth, it was an 80-page book subtitled Game Master's Campaign and Adventure Guide. What this did was add a role-playing system and a world background to the overall system, since Melee and Wizard were required to play a game with In the Labyrinth. In fact, to support the new release, Melee and Wizard were updated, with Advanced Melee and Advanced Wizard releasing alongside this new book. Needless to say, the systems for Melee and Wizard were expanded, and the systems for Combat were also adjusted for the new additions. So, if you take all three systems and put them together, you get what metagaming called the Fantasy Trip. Characters in the Fantasy Trip looked very similar to their micro-games counterparts. They still each had strength, dexterity, and intelligence, they still had weapons and armor, and they could still cast spells. However, I mentioned some fine-tuning of the rules a moment ago, so let's look into a few of them. The idea here is that each character would start with 8 points in each of the attributes and would get 8 points to use to increase the scores as they saw fit so that they could more easily play the type of character they wanted to play. So as you may have noticed, this means that In the Labyrinth introduced something new to the role-playing game, the point-by system. Yeah, we see that for the attributes, but In the Labyrinth also used it for the skill system. This just wasn't done in role-playing games before 1980. Games before then pretty much all used the die roll system for everything. The way the skill system worked is that each character got a talent or skill point for each point of IQ they had. The points could then be used to buy skills, though those had varying costs as well as a minimum IQ required to learn it. Talents worked kind of like classes did in D&D. So instead of a thief character, there was a thief talent. So that would allow a character to use its dexterity for rolls to pick pockets or pick locks. It was also possible for characters to learn skills and or talents that went the opposite of their style. What I mean is that it was possible for a fighter type to learn spellcasting and for a spellcasting type to learn a fighting talent. It wasn't easy or cheap to do, but it could be done. So let's do a review of the fantasy trip before we move on. Ronald Peer reviewed it in The Space Gamer in September of 1980. He said, quote, The Fantasy Trip is an excellent fantasy role-playing system. I'd have liked it to be better organized and a few dollars cheaper, but those who purchase it anyway will be very glad they did. End quote. Okay, so with these basics out of the way, let's do a history lesson. This is about as messy as the releases that make up The Fantasy Trip, but just as interesting, in my opinion. I laid out the release dates for the main components of the system, as well as noting that Steve Jackson created it and Metagaming released it. We're going to pick up the history there. Metagaming supported the fantasy trip to the hilt, publishing a total of eight micro-quests, which were inexpensive adventures that could either be played solo or as a group. They also released what we would call more traditional modules. Uh, Tolankar's Lair, that's a straight-up dungeon crawl in the D&D style. It was released in 1980. Two more traditional modules dropped in 1982, Warrior Lords of Darok and Forest Lords of Dihad. These were created to support a campaign setting called The Land Beyond the Mountains, which metagaming produced with Game Lords. By the way, that wasn't metagaming's first team-up with another company for the Fantasy Trip product. 
A year earlier, Chaosium had gotten a license to produce Thieves' World. That was an entire campaign setting using their proprietary systems, but also having character statistics and rules adjustments for the fantasy trip. And both The Space Gamer and Interplay, which were metagaming published magazines, carried the fantasy trip materials on the regular, and these included new or alternate rules and setting expansions. However, after 1980, Steve Jackson's name wouldn't appear on any of the product. That's because he'd chosen to leave metagaming that year. In response, Howard M. Thompson, who owned the company, decided he didn't like Jackson's work on the fantasy trip, and he made wholesale changes to the rules in an attempt to simplify them for the setting Dragons of Underearth. Those changes also passed along when the Lords of Underearth was released. By 1983, metagaming was no more. Thompson shut it down and sold off most of the assets. Now, as you would expect, Steve Jackson attempted to buy the rights to the fantasy trip so he could get back to working on his creation. However, Thompson reportedly asked for $250,000 US for the rights, and Jackson believed that number was too high. For the record, two hundred and fifty grand in 1983 would be a bit over 670000 today, so I think I can see where Steve Jackson was coming from. So with the two sides at an impasse, the fantasy trip went out of print. Steve Jackson instead turned his attention to what he called a third-generation role-playing system. We would eventually come to know it as GURPS, and we covered that in a previous episode, which is available in the archives. Now, I said the fantasy trip went out of print, but that's not entirely true. In 1988, Hobby Japan released a Japanese-language edition of the fantasy trip called Phantom Unicorn Quest. It used the rules from Melee and Wizard and also included five separate micro-quests as a part of the book. But, as we've learned from many episodes of this show, very rarely is a popular game ever permanently dead. In December of 2017, Steve Jackson announced he'd regained the rights to the fantasy trip. How'd he do that? He exercised an option available to him under U.S. law that allows an author to unilaterally terminate a grant of publication rights between 35 and 40 years after publication. Since Melee was 40 years old at the time and the other two releases fell between the allotted years, Jackson was able to get the rights to his creation back, and he didn't waste time using them. In July of 2018, Steve Jackson Games launched a Kickstarter so they could reissue Melee, Wizard, and a The Fantasy Trip Legacy Edition in a box set with expanded rules for In the Labyrinth. Of course, the Kickstarter included more product to sweeten the pot, but those were the pillars of the release. How'd they do? The Kickstarter pulled in more than $450,000, which well exceeded their goal. Steve Jackson Games subsequently released the box set and has since sworn they'd continue to support it with new product. This promise to the game world has come from multiple other Kickstarters that Steve Jackson Games has created for new product, as well as a new licensing structure that allows other companies to get into the fantasy trip. The first company to take the plunge is Gaming Ballistic, who published five adventures for the system in 2019. So while the fantasy trip went away for a little while, it's back and better than ever. So let's move on then and check out the second featured piece of this week's show, Fudge. Fudge is a generic role-playing system which is intended to be used in free-form role-playing games. What's a free-form role-playing game, you might ask? For all intents and purposes, when you hear free-form, think LARP, which, as we've discussed in the past, stands for live-action role-playing. That's not always 100% the case, but for the majority, let's just go with it. So, Fudge was designed as a system to be used for LARP as an alternative to White Wolf's system they'd been using for Vampire for several years at that point. 
You can also argue that fudge was created specifically because White Wolf's system was seen as being for vampire. Both ideas would make sense to me. Anyway, let's dig into the history and see where it lands. Fudge came from an idea published on an online news group. Stefan O'Sullivan laid out his proposal on rec.games.design in November of 1992, and others involved in the online community stepped up to contribute to the design of the system. O'Sullivan had one major stipulation about his system that he would never budge on. It had to always be free for public use on the internet. For the record, the 1995 version of Fudge is still available for free use online thanks to a non-commercial license, so O'Sullivan got his wish. However, that's not the only version of Fudge that's available. In 2004, Grey Ghost Press acquired the copyright to Fudge, since O'Sullivan hadn't done so previously. However, he did endorse them building on the system, so long as the 1995 version was allowed to be free use, which Grey Ghost agreed to, as I noted a moment ago. Grey Ghost Press has released three editions of Fudge since then, with the most recent being the 10th Anniversary Edition in 2005. The 10th Anniversary Edition offers rules for the most common role-playing game elements out there, and even provides an example for a basic fantasy build for the game. Grey Ghost Press put out an open game license for Fudge, and that has allowed the Fate role-playing system to use Fudge as the chassis for its system. In 1999, Pyramid Magazine named Fudge as one of the millennium's most underrated games. Scott Herring stated that, quote, Fudge is an extremely flexible, rules-light system. It works great, and everybody who plays it loves it. Why isn't it more popular? I don't know. End quote. Not trying to be a snob here, but I've got a one-word, four-letter response. LARP. For some gamers, LARP is considered a dirty word, so the concept is something they wouldn't consider. So... Any game that might even possibly be tied into something that could be LARP related is going to be a nope in some of their cases. For me, game how you want a game, so long as everybody agrees and nobody gets hurt. But here's another thing to consider. The freeform rules can and very frequently are modified to the tabletop. It doesn't take much and the simplicity of the rules allow for a much easier tabletop experience typically. So if you can get past the freeform concept, you might just find something you like. I'm just saying. So let's take a minute to talk about that name, Fudge. When it was first created, the trend in role-playing games was to have a cutesy acronym for a name. GURPS and TWERPS would be the first two to come to mind. The Usenet group came up with one of their own during the design process, SLUG, which stood for Simple, Laid-Back, Universal Game. Needless to say, the thought of calling a game Slug didn't appeal to all, so the name was changed to Fudge, which stood for Freeform Universal Donated Gaming Engine. Grey Ghost Press changed the meaning of Fudge when they released their first book. They referred to it as Freeform Universal Do-It-Yourself Gaming Engine. By 2000, the cutesy acronym phase had passed, so Grey Ghost Press decided to keep the acronym, but only capitalize one letter. Therefore, Fudge now stands for nothing specific and only the F is capitalized. There's some game trivia that might win you something at a convention. Or not. Alright, you know me. I gotta look at what makes the system tick. So let's pop the hood and take a look. The first thing we have to note about Fudge is that the rules are exceptionally customizable. Basically, the GM can adjust the rules however they see fit to work with the type of game they want to run. They can make things as simple or as hard as they'd like. And since the rules encourage role-playing over following the book rules, Fudge can literally be whatever it needs to be. Fudge does have attributes and skills, but they're rated on a 7-level scale. 
terrible, poor, mediocre, fair, good, great, and superb. There are also gifts and faults, which are positive and negative traits that don't work with the seven level scale. Rolling to determine success and failures, pretty simple. Fudge dice are used, which are six-sided dice with two each of plus and minus signs, plus two blank faces. Typically, a player rolls four of these, shortened to 4DF in game speak. For every plus, the result of using the trait is considered one higher than the rank. For every minus, it's one step lower, and blanks mean you used it at the level you have it at. The overall idea is to match or surpass the difficulty level of the test, and it's on the same scale as the traits. By the way, over the years, gamers have modified the system to use 10-sided dice, coins, playing cards, pretty much anything you can think of to determine successes and failures. And I tell you what, let's end our look at Fudge with a review. Rick Swan reviewed it for the January 1996 edition of Dragon Magazine. He called the system, quote, a remarkable achievement, a concise, logical analysis of RPG theory that amateur and pro designers alike would do well to ponder, end quote. He did state that he felt too much fell onto the shoulders of the GM, quote, not only must he roleplay the NPCs, stage memorable encounters, and keep the story on track, he must also come up with difficulty levels for every conceivable situation. That ain't easy. End quote. He gave Fudge a 5 out of 6 and added, quote, Fudge is about as appropriate for novices as calculus is for preschoolers. Seasoned gamers, however, will be in for a pleasant surprise. End quote. We've got one more stop on today's tour, so let's check out Gumshoe. The gumshoe system comes from a simple idea. Investigative scenarios are difficult, if not impossible, to run with most role-playing systems on the market. The stated reason for that is because of the reliance on dice rolls to find important clues. So if the player misses a roll, the character misses finding crucial pieces of information or clues they need to solve the problem. Robin Laws is the designer of the gumshoe system, and it was first published by Pelgrane Press in 2007. Laws got around some of the issues with investigations by taking the focus away from finding the clues. Instead, the system revolves around the idea of interpreting clues. So, that puts the focus of the GM on designing investigative scenarios. The focus of the players is turned to taking control of that investigation, which means taking control of the overall story. Now, that's a different concept for role-playing games as well since the players are typically following the story the GM has written and are acting within the confines of that overall book, as it were. Another difference with the gumshoe system is that the die rolling is pretty much the exclusive territory of the players. NPCs don't typically roll dice. Instead, they modify rolls made by the player, or they will automatically succeed or fail, depending on what the GM finds more dramatically appropriate. Also, combat in Gumshoe is the rare exception rather than the rule. So let's get into the nuts and bolts of the system. We'll start with character creation. Characters are created in Gumshoe on a build point system. Those points are used to buy ratings and abilities and are a one-for-one one buy. Each character gets a number of investigative build points that's dependent on the number of players in the game and the setting. The example I've seen used the most to describe this is the Robin Laws penned setting, the Esoterrorists, so I'll use theirs. In that setting, if you've got two players, they each get 32 investigative build points. If you've got five or more players, they get 20 each. The rules specifically state that any number of investigative build points can be spent on any investigative ability, but it's been noted that putting more than three or four into any one ability is probably a waste of points. Each character also gets a number of general build points based on the setting. 
Unlike the investigative points, these aren't dependent on the number of players. So, in the Esoterrorists, each player gets 60 general build points to use, and again, they can put as many points as they want into a general ability, so long as the second highest rated ability is at least half of the highest rated one. It also needs to be noted, there are no levels in Gumshoe. Much like in other systems, players get more build points at the end of a scenario, and they can be used either for investigative or general build points. Of course, the amount of points they get depends on the scenario and the overall generosity of the GM. Now, I spent the time laying out character creation first because the mechanics of Gumshoe revolve around character abilities. The idea is that investigative abilities are used to find the clues that advance the story. These are core clues, and investigative abilities always work. No die rolls necessary. Basically, it goes like this. If a scene has a core clue in it and the character uses an investigative ability that relates to the clue, the character finds the clue. Now, there's a concept in Gumshoe called the spend. Players can spend what are called pool points on their abilities. I'll get into the pool in a moment, but in the investigative use, they would give additional clues to the player. They're not necessarily needed to solve the scenario, but they'd give additional information that they can use or some other benefits. A couple of examples of investigative abilities, by the way, would be cop talk and forensic accounting. General abilities would be used when it's dramatically necessary on an unknown outcome, such as shooting someone, which, like I said, is rare, or like you're going to try to climb a structure. In this case, there is a die roll. It's a six-sided die, and it's rolled against a target number or difficulty. For the record, they're the same thing, so don't worry. The standard difficulty is a four, though a range of two to eight is certainly possible depending on the circumstances. And again, it can be modified according to what's dramatically appropriate. And this is an equal to or higher than roll, so we want big numbers. You can spend here as well, so let's get into that pool. There are a number of rating points for each ability that go into a pool of points at the beginning of the scenario or campaign. Players spend points from the appropriate ability pool, and in the case of general abilities, they can spend as many points as they have in that particular pool to try to ensure success. Points are typically refreshed after every scenario, but the GM can choose to refresh at other times if they wish. Okay, so with the pool covered, let's get into health. Health and stability are general abilities in Gumshoe. They work differently, though, from other abilities. See, regular abilities can be drained, and they can't go any lower than zero. Health and stability, though, can go into the negatives. Those drops represent serious injury or mental illness, and if either of them reaches negative 12, that's all she wrote for the character. They either die or they go permanently insane. Stability is refreshed between scenarios, but health can only be refreshed through rest, so be careful. Looking at the overall history of the system, the Gumshoe system has been used in a number of different releases from Pelgrane Press over the years, and has also been part of Kickstarters that brought a system reference document and open game license for the system into play. Fourteen different books and supplements have been published for the system over the years. One of them, Trail of Cthulhu, won the 2010 Luca Games Award for Best Role-Playing Game, while another, Ashen Stars was a 2011 Origins Award nominee for Best Role-Playing Game. The most recent release is called The Yellow King Role-Playing Game. Written by Robin Laws, it released in 2020 and takes the gumshoe concept into multiple selves and timelines, and that's according to the snippets I was able to read about it. So if you're looking to do your best gumshoe, the gumshoe system would be the way to go. And with that, 
we've come to the end of today's tour. Next week, I'm going to unleash one of my three project topics onto the podcast. So check us out to figure out which one it's going to be. Also, if you've got an idea for something you'd like to hear us cover, reach out to me and let me know, and we'll get it into an episode of the show. Speaking of shows and episodes, there's a new episode of Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along up right now. This week, we're building towards the climax of our campaign, though our groups found themselves in a bit of a pickle. How do we get them through it? Listen and find out. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is available wherever you get your podcasts or from our website, badgmproductions.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Role-Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod, Twitter at Bad GMP, YouTube Bad GM Productions. You can email us at badgmproductions at gmail.com. And the website is badgmproductions.net. Next week is going to be a surprise, but I can assure you it will be worth the wait. But that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're role-playing history.